Hello and welcome to the Resilient Sessions. Alongside our weekly episodes, we wanted to give listeners the chance to hear the full story of our veterans. So here is a mini-sode with our first veteran from episode one, Swifty, telling his story. We're in Belfast. It's 1991, May the 25th, 1991. To be more precise, it's half past five on a Saturday night. It's a typical grey Belfast sky overhead. Myself and my colleague, Geordie, we're feeding the dogs. We're dog handlers in the British Army, you see. Geordie is an AES handler, arms explosive search, and I'm a tracker dog handler. So AES stands for arms explosive search, and that means that he goes out and he finds the guns, the bombs, and the ammunition. Myself and my dog, Troy, we go out and we find the people that put them there. That's it in a nutshell. So we're feeding the dogs, we just finished, and two members of the IRA, a terrorist organisation, they come out of a, onto a wrought iron fire escape, it's about 50 foot above us on a building that's adjacent to us. And they drop what we knew as a coffee jar bomb. And it's quite literally that, it's a coffee jar. And in the coffee jar is Semtex, a high explosive, and in the Semtex is uh, shipyard confetti, we used to call it, and that's nuts, bolts, rivets, nails, anything, screws that is going to fly and maim and kill. Well, they dropped this bomb on, I presume, they were aiming for my head. They missed, obviously, and it landed at my feet. In that instant, I went from being six foot two to four foot six. Geordie was standing a little bit further away from where the device went bang. I remember looking over and seeing him lying there face down next to me. And I shouted at him, Geordie, Geordie, Geordie. Like he was going to wake up. He couldn't see because he was dead. Geordie's chest had been opened up. He'd lost his lungs, his heart, um, his throat had been ripped out and his uh, lower jaw was missing as well. I sat staring at him for a couple of seconds, then I looked at myself. My right leg was hanging on by about that much skin and tendon, just holding on. My left leg was gone completely, that went up and over a wall. My two fingers on my right hand uh, were ripped off and basically hanging on the back of my hand. This was because I picked up the tins. You know your mum used to say to you, don't mess around with sharp tins when you're in the kitchen with her. Well, I wasn't messing around with the tins, but I had the two tins in my hand as the blast went off and it ripped my fingers. My left arm's got a lot of uh, shrapnel and a, a lot, quite a large injury to it. I nearly lost that as well. Um, there's a lot of shrapnel in there as, as of today. I remember looking down at myself and thinking, I'm going to die. This is going to hurt in a minute and it's really going to hurt and I'm going to die. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll shoot myself. Now here's the thing. <laughs> every day of every tour, this is my third tour of Northern Ireland, every single day of every tour, I'd had a weapon on me of some sort. I'd had a pistol on my hip or an assault rifle, one or the other. And this one particular day, I'm sat there on this concrete in the middle of Belfast, and I haven't got my weapon. I've reached for it and it's not there. So I couldn't even shoot myself. 
My nana died about 18 months before, and I'm not a religious person, but I remember looking up at the sky and thinking, oh, there'll be a tunnel or something in a minute, and a light at the end of it, and she'll be saying, Darren, Darren, come to the light, come to the light. Well, I sat there looking up for a couple of seconds, and, well, nothing happened. So, at the same time, Troy, my dog, he escaped most, most any injury, really, and he popped out from underneath his twisted kennel, and ran round to a guard room, which is at the front of our security base, and started barking all the guys and getting them to come round and help, him, help me. So they all came round and they did exactly what I would have been doing. They stood about 30 metres away, just stood, didn't come in to help. Now the reason they do this is because the terrorists quite often put a secondary device to catch the rescuers, the people that are there to help. So they deliberately stay away. And I know this because that's what I would be doing. So I'm thinking to myself, I need to go and get to them. They can't come to me, I need to get to them. <laughs> so I laid over on the side and I started to crawl towards them. I don't know if any of you have ever tried this, but crawling without legs is pretty hard to do. I realised after a while that the one thing that was weighing me down was this leg, the leg that was holding on by about that much skin and tendon. So I, so I grabbed hold of the leg and you know like you guys all bite your nails and we all do. You bite your nails down to the quick at the side and you think, oh, this is going to hurt for a second and you just rip it off. Well, I thought I could do that with my leg. Um, you can't. I pushed and I pulled and I pushed and I pulled and I just couldn't pull my own leg off. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll hold on to my leg and I'll crawl. I'll, hold, I'll grab the leg and crawl with it. That didn't work either. I was still getting nowhere. As time went on, the guys decided, quite rightly, to come in and help me. We didn't have a lot of medical equipment back in those days, so they were ripping off their combat jackets and t-shirts and anything they could get their hands on to put on the ends of my stumps to stem the flow of blood. I was still in no pain at this time. A couple of seconds later, an ambulance turned up. and This was just a normal ambulance, almost a taxi service for hospitals in Belfast. And it, so it wasn't a paramedic. They turned up, the back doors opened, the trolley came out. I was unceremoniously thrown onto the trolley and then thrown into the back of the ambulance. The doors were slammed and off we shot about 90 miles an hour through the streets of Belfast. I think to this day we hit every single bump, lump, sleeping policeman curb in Belfast en route to the hospital. We were on our way to RVH, Royal Victoria Hospital, Belfast. So there I am in the back of this ambulance. There's a guy in the back, there's a guy driving and a guy in the back with me. And the guy in the back has just been finished on the radio, told that RVH what's about to come through the door and he's thrown me this mask and he said stick that on your face i'm lying on this stretcher remember we're hitting all the bumps so i'm swinging around still with my leg in my hand and i i grabbed this mask and put it on my face he spins some taps on a machine he's given me entinox and some of you might know this but your mums would have had that when you were being born probably well the other name for entinox another name for entinox is laughing gas and he must have got the mix wrong or something because I'm lying there with my leg in my hand and all of a sudden I think I'm in the middle of a Monty Python sketch. This is hilarious. I'm swinging about at 90 miles an hour on a Saturday evening, roaring through the streets of Belfast. We finally reached the hospital and they unloaded me from the ambulance, still on this stretcher, on this trolley. And off we went through into A&E, down this corridor. And it is just like you see on the TV. There's a, 
there's all these strip lights and double doors, strip light, strip light, double door, strip light, strip light, double door, and it seems to go on forever. Eventually, I end up in A&E, and a nurse came up and jabbed me with a needle in my arm, and then they, her and the two ambulance guys transferred me from uh, the, the ambulance trolley onto a hospital one. The two ambulance guys were taking their trolley away, their blood-soaked trolley away, and I remember, still off my head on the Internox, reaching over and grabbing hold of the coattail of one of the ambulance guys. And he spun round, he looked at me and I said, cheers mate, thanks very much. And he turned round, put his thumb up and said, never you mean, big man, you get better. <clears throat> that was it. I woke up four days later in intensive care. Four days after that, they flew me to Woolwich, which was the last of uh, the Queen Elizabeth, which was the last of the military hospitals at the time. I was going to be spending the next 18 months of my life there, between there and a place called RAF Heavy Court, which was our rehabilitation unit. <laughs> About three weeks into my stay there, I'd been getting bathed and showered by a team of nurses, which is quite cool, but I was losing my independence. I wanted to gain something back. I wanted to be able to do something for myself for Swifty. So I asked the doctor, any chance I could have a bath on my own? And he wasn't very keen to start with. He eventually relented and said, as long as I was careful, he'd be happy with that. So there I was, I had the bath, I did what you do in the bath, got myself clean, jumped up onto the side of the bath and got into my wheelchair. I then span round in the chair to grab a towel. <clears throat> on the back of the door, which is normally open because there's a team of nurses in there. On the back of the door is a full length mirror. And I'm sat facing it for the first time since I got blown up. I remember looking down at my stumps and the fingers and my arms, thinking, what a mess. What am I gonna do now? I could see all the scabs and the scars and the puncture wounds where the shrapnel had gone in, where the needles had gone in. I could see all the staples and the stitch marks. I didn't start crying or bawling, I just, I just sat staring and after a while I, I realised I've got, I've got one of two choices here. I could one, put my chin on my chest and let this team of nurses wipe my backside for me for the rest of my life. Or I could two, pick my chin up and crack on with the rest of my life. With whatever I've got left however long I've got left. So that's what I did. I got on with the rest of my life. Now I joined the army to travel. That was one of the reasons why I liked the army. I got to travel a bit. And I wanted to go back to doing that. It was my passion, it's what I love to do. So I went off around the world. I visited some places that I'd been to before with the army and I went to some places that I'd never been before. Thoroughly enjoying every moment of it. But this time I was doing everything in a wheelchair. I got up to some adventures, um, some escapades, some misadventures as well, um, and got involved in various sports, one of them being skydiving. I managed to become a skydiver. A year after me to the month, another guy, a friend of mine, um, uh, Alistair, Alistair Hodgson, he and I, he, he, he's a double above knee amputee as well. Um, he was blown up in Northern Ireland and we'd become good friends and we decided to go and do a tandem for Blesma. 
raised some money for Blesma, British Limbless Sex Servicemen's Association. Anyway, we did this tandem. We both landed with our respective tandem partners and landed on the grass, looked over each other and both said at the same time, wow, that was fantastic. We want to do that on our own. Let's do that on our own. So we shouted to, the, to Dave, who's the boss of the drop zone. Um, we knew him anyway, he was a friend. And we said, Dave, is there any chance we could do this on our own? And he scratched his chin and thought, well, I'm not sure, guys. I don't know what the insurance and the safety people would say about it, but I'll make some inquiries. About the same time, there was, a, there was a few of the skydivers coming up to us saying, you can't do this, guys. There's no way you can do this. You've got, you can't skydive. You've got to have legs. You've got to have knees to skydive. You've got to land. Dave got back to us about three weeks later and said, no, you can do it. The guys have accepted, the, the insurance have accepted it. They said, yeah, no problem, do it. So we did our course and we became skydivers. Three years later, we attended the British Skydive Championships really just for fun. And we walked away, wheeled away, with a gold, a gold medal. We were quite proud of that. And to this day, if people tell us we can't do something, we're quite happy to show that gold medal to them. We were told we couldn't skydive. I didn't get bored with skydiving really, but I decided to move on to other sports. I was, I'd become a keen sit skier as well. I quite like that. Um, but whilst on a, 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 a sit skiing trip to Italy, I, I sat there one day um, just having a bite to eat and I watched three young lads snowboarding down the mountain. I looked up and I thought, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. I want to snowboard because it looks cool. So I came home from that trip and I spoke to a friend of mine, Dale, Dale Renard, and uh, he and I put our heads together after having a couple of pints actually in a pub uh, and a beer mat on the back of a beer mat and we drew up a rudimentary design of some bindings that I might use on a snowboard. That was 15, 16 years ago. And since then, I've become a uh, Paralympic contender for snowboarding. I've competed at the highest level with some of the best Paralympic snowboarders on the planet. And perhaps more importantly, I've managed to teach a couple of other people how to snowboard, other people with amputations, double above knee amputations. One of them, Lee Lloyd, he's an ex-soldier as well, uh, blown up in Afghanistan, he's a, a double above knee amputee, and uh, he wanted to snowboard, he rang me up, I've taught him to snowboard. And there was a young girl, Ellie Chalice, and you can Google this, you can find out all about Ellie. Ellie Chalice, she's a GB Olympic um, swimmer. Olympic team swimmer. She rang me up and said, I want to snowboard. She's a quad amp. At age 18 months, she contracted meningitis and lost both her arms and both her legs above knee. She's now snowboarding as well in her spare time. I do some other things as well. I've, been, I've got myself involved in some acting, some film and TV acting and some theatre, West End theatre as well. So I've also done that to get a bit of coin so I can afford to go snowboarding. But I think you can all probably appreciate from, from my uh, story, I hope you appreciate from my story, that the general theme is positivity. And I think in this present time with all the difficulties we're experiencing at the moment, I think being positive is something that will help us through. Positivity is the way to go. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Swifty's Story, which we've released as part of the Resilient Session series. We're back next week with another full episode where Stu and I chat to inspiring Blesma veterans 
and especially invited guests. See you then.